Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 121 of the GateWorld Podcast. My name is Darren, and David is off this week. So instead, substituting for him as my co-host is our very special, super extraordinaire GateWorld assistant editor, Chad Colvin. Chad, say hello to hello. the people. <laughs> hello, Darren, and hello, everyone. Uh, our main topic this week is hope. It's episode number 14 of season two of Stargate Universe. It aired last week on Sci-Fi Channel in the U.S. and on Space in the U.K. But before we get to talking about Hope, Chad, we have a bit of catch-up to do with you. You're sort of... We, we brought you on as, as uh, the assistant editor for David and I, but, but you ended up being sort of the convention go-to guy. Uh, I did. you love conventions. You're planning on a lot of conventions, uh, or at least a few this year. Um, a few, so not as many as last year. But, uh, okay, yeah. so what's coming up? Let's see, in April, uh, here this month actually, just a week from now, I'll be uh, heading up to Vancouver for Creations Vancouver official Stargate convention. Mm-hmm. And uh, as always, yearly, that is you know a massive mecca of Stargate fans and Stargate actors that show up uh, to meet the fans, You know, just because of the fact that Vancouver is where the series and the franchise has been filmed. But yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Basically, I'll be uh, up there a full week and hopefully getting a chance to uh, talk to a lot of the uh, actors. And uh, Brad Wright himself is planning to visit there on Sunday, so hopefully one way or the other we'll get a, a chance to uh, hear from him on just to see uh, where the uh, things are going at with the franchise going forward and what the future holds uh, at this point in his mind where he thinks things may be headed. So are there big guests at uh, the Creation Vancouver convention that you're excited to see on stage again and maybe get to, to schmooze with a little bit behind stage? Well, it's a four-day con where most of Creation Stargate events are just three days. So again, it is a little bit bigger. Um, they'll wow. hold off on a lot of the bigger names until Saturday and Sunday. Saturday itself is uh, like Joe Flanagan, David Hewlett, Paul McGillian. Uh, a big one I'm excited for on Saturday is Robert Davi. Who, uh, oh, cool. Augustus Colia on Atlantis. He's huge. I mean, and I've been a fan of his career, you know, even going back into the, you know, 80s and 90s. You know, he was uh, in The Goonies. He was uh, one of the Bond villains in one of those movies, you know. So, you know, he's done a lot of stuff besides that that I'm excited to actually see him. On Sunday, Christopher Judge uh, is back. It'll be his first creation convention in several years. Jameel Walker-Smith from Stargate Universe will be there. Chris Heyerdahl. It's just overall, it's just going to be one big Stargate party. So, yeah, very, (laughs) very, yeah. Very much looking forward to it. Yeah, you usually do Chicago at the end of the summer. Are you going to do the Chicago, Chicago again? August, yep. Um, also, uh, Wizard World uh, is starting to branch out into doing more uh, Comic-Cons outside of the San Diego area. Obviously, San Diego is the biggest one of the year. Beginning last year, uh, they really started to push hitting other cities, and uh, I'll be hitting that Chicago one, too. And they've already announced several guests there with uh, Stargate Connections, so... 
that's in August also. So that'll be a busy month. And so can we expect some uh, convention write-ups, some photos, maybe some well, interviews the, <laughs> absolutely. at Gay World? Absolutely. Uh, we'll have interviews uh, from at least a handful of people. Also, above and beyond that, I'll try to be getting daily reports out uh, the last couple of years, well, this year, and then last year prior, I was the only editor that was able to uh, make it up, uh, because both you and David have had prior commitments, so uh, yeah, it was kind I'll of do the best that I can. The first couple of years when, you know, all of you were there with me, it was uh, it was nice. It was a little less hectic. <laughs> we had such a fantastic time when we go to, to Vancouver, and Creation throws a great event. They do. Uh, and it's... Uh, that was the the biggest bummer for me moving to Scotland for a few years was the fact that I can't afford to trek all the way back to Vancouver uh, for the for the convention week. I hope when I'm back in the states that I'll be able to do to do it again. If if not regularly, then semi regularly because it's a lot of fun. Well, should we talk about some SGU? Yes, let's do that. The main discussion. Hope once again is episode fourteen of season two of Stargate Universe. You know, what what we tend to get from, from the writers up in Vancouver, uh, I've gotten used to this over the course of the last umpteen million years that Stargate has been on, is you get an episode that sort of, a lot of money gets spent on, you know, like the mid-season premiere, and it's got lots of visual effects, and it's whiz-bang, and it's fantastic, and, and I end up giving it three and a half or four stars on the site. And then you'll get sort of a slow one, a quiet one, the sort of thing that, that science fiction shows have had to do for so long, which is a bottle show. You know, a bottle show is something that just uses the cast. It uses, well, we had some guest stars here. But it uses the standing sets. So you don't go on location, you don't build new sets. It's supposed to be a little bit less expensive of an episode to help balance out those big whiz-bang episodes. And by and large, bottle shows have a have kind of a taller hill to climb, if you know what I mean. They sort of, they don't have those advantages of uh, you know a big adventure off the ship going to a planet, uh, tons of special effects, so they have to work harder. And so, as a result, bottle shows, I tend to put more in the middle of the pack. Uh, I tend to give them more like two, two and a half stars out of four, um, just because they're you know they're they're usually good but not great. Now, Hope is a bottle show. Hope is a show that's set entirely on board Destiny, entirely with our standing sets. And with a couple of guest stars. Hope is... I'm, I'm amazed after we get episodes like Deliverance, Twin Destinies, which were some of SGU's best. Hope, I think, is one of the best episodes of SGU. I'm actually going to completely agree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know uh, how often David actually does that with you in regards to uh, uh, some of the bottle shows. But now Hope, in a lot of ways, and I, we talked about this a little bit uh, prior... Uh, was the fact that in this episode, the supporting characters actually, I believe, steal the show completely mm-hmm. from many of the main cast. Yeah, there's, there's, okay, there's two storylines going on. There's all the communication stones and, and connecting with Gin. Uh, and then there's, I'm not sure if, if you would even call it a B story, because it seems like the two are, are almost two A-level stories, mm-hmm. uh, with, with Volker falling ill and TJ having to perform a transplant. You know, Volker and Brody and all the stuff that's going on in that second A storyline is just as fantastic, just as compelling, you know, funny moments and and touching moments. I really appreciate in this episode having uh, 
Patrick Gilmore and Peter Kalamis, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Stargate Universe, as Diana Botsford has called them. Absolutely. And one of the other things, too, um, you go back to that amount of humor. Going back and watching Hope again, I actually watched it for a second time here uh, right before we started talking. And you go from these beats that are supposed to be somber and, and suspenseful because you don't know what's going to happen. And then you get an instance, and I don't know if we want to talk about it now specifically, but you know, mm-hmm. it's where something happens with a character to the side and you bust out laughing. And in all <laughs> honesty, you know, there's been humorous moments in, you know, many episodes of SGU since it started. They've gotten more. Um, there's been more of them since uh, season two began, but this was the first one where literally I was on the floor rolling because of what happened. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely the case with me. And I was talking to David a little bit about this scene with the at the beginning of Volker's surgery, where you know he's had this previous conversation with Brody, where they're talking about their favorite piece of music, and and Volker's favorite piece of music is also Sprock Zarathustra which is the theme from 2001, and so Brody, to like try and make him relax and feel better, plays this for him, and it's just incredibly intense and inappropriate, and that in itself, and the, the way that it plays off the, mm-hmm. the faces of all the supporting characters is just hilarious, and then it, and then it goes into the, the Numma Numma song, which, oh, just hilarious. I think this is one of the funniest moments in the history of Stargate. It's just so random, and it stands in such stark contrast to the 2001 theme. But this is what this episode does so well, is the the stuff that's going on with Volker in particular is so serious. This guy is on the edge of death. And (laughs) the the writers, um, I think Carl Binder wrote this episode, just did such a great job of... You know, lightening the mood, and that's what what SGU has been been criticized for over the course of the last couple of years is it's just too serious and it misses out on the humor of of SGU in Atlantis. Those guys could go into life or death situations and still crack a joke, and these guys aren't cracking wise like this is not a big deal. But there are these mood lightening moments like like the song, like um, Greer's little little prank where he he screams. It was the other one? The other one was um, the erectile dysfunction joke. Yes. Where all the characters start busting out laughing. And it's just sort of the thing that I think that, that makes SGU a, a better show, makes it makes it more well-rounded, in my opinion. Absolutely. And hopefully it's a trend that continues to go forward. I think we'll probably, again, not stepping outside of hope too much, but going forward here with next week having David Hewlett and the comic relief that he sometimes brings with his character. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'll see Seizure as a completely uh, suspense build. I think there will be some humor there also. I think that the humor of this episode is the sort of thing that, that not necessarily could be done in season one, at least not to this degree, partly because the characters don't know each other as well, and partly because it's this dire situation of, we hate being here and we want to go home. And now that we've crossed that threshold of, we're okay being here, I think um, these guys are, are willing to lighten up a little bit more. I think so, too. And it's actually, it's nice to see even characters that don't usually get a chance to, you know, flex that comedic side, that conversation that they have talking about the side effects of the surgery with Volker and when erectile dysfunction is brought up, and the entire room, everybody in there, you know, people that don't necessarily where you see that they have that much of a sense of humor, or even, you know, something like where Greer is uh, on the table and uh, he's getting prepped for his uh, bone marrow being removed and uh, mm-hmm, he screams right. like he's in pain and then lets it off as a complete joke and then you know he's just <laughs> fine you know Greer seeing him 
with a sense of humor that is something we have seen so little of mm. on the series as a whole. It, it almost felt out of place to me, but I, I think that again goes back to I think the character of Greer is maybe starting to open up a little bit more, uh, especially after the events of the episode prior. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, so we need a kidney donor, basically. Volker is in end-stage renal failure, and we've only got something like 80 people on board this ship. It's it's sort of a minor miracle that TJ finds a couple of people who are uh, a compatible match, at least close enough, uh, that we can go ahead and do this. Uh, so you get this great scene with Greer and this other guy, this character who we've had a terrible name time naming. He's credited on IMDb as Morrison. Uh, the actor's name is Vincent Gale, but his name's not been established on the screen, actually. He was in Faith. He was one of the guys who went to the planet in Faith, sort of the mm-hmm. skeptical science guy. He was in Visitation when those guys came back to Destiny. Right. Uh, and now he wants to know, you know, if I'm even going to think about giving you my kidney, I want to know how accurate are your tests and blah, blah, blah. And Greer says, I'll do it. Because Greer is a Marine, and, and the Marine's job is to save people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, telling, too, was, I think, the fact that uh, when Volker says thank you, and and Greer says back to him, you know, uh, it's not a problem. You do the same thing for me. And yeah, you look you at Volker, and you see in his eyes him questioning, would I? I'm yeah. not positive I would. Greer just steps up to the plate like that, and I think that's a, a tribute to the character. Volker's not sure that he would, <clears throat> and he's sort of, it looks like he's not just floored and taken aback by Greer's generosity, but he's sort of convicted you know, this guy is doing this for him absolutely without question, without hesitation. Uh, that's it, sort of a, a very convicting thing. I think another thing, too, is it's established in the episode prior that Greer is the only one that hasn't used the communication stones to go home, uh, back to Earth, and to see anybody there. And, and we see right. the way that he interacts and is starting to interact even more now with some of the crew on Destiny. And, and I almost think and, and feel like the reason he hasn't gone to Earth, uh, he's, you've seen him on screen talking about the fact that, you know, it's not a pleasant family life that he's had in any way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. And in ways, I think he feels like, and the reason why he's so willing to, A, stay on Destiny, and B, to help out in this way, is because he has this sense of family here on the ship that he never had in his life prior. Yeah, I think there's been some interaction with Matt in the past where he's sort of referred to him as his brother. Yeah, so this is his family now. And, I mean, this episode shows, again, how far we've come in a year. How far we've come since the the coup that Rush and Ray led last year. Back in yes. Divided in Season 1. This is... It's military versus civilians. And Dale Volker is a civilian, and he decides... Uh, as much as, as he dislikes Rush, you know, Rush is constantly belittling him. Um, he's going to side with Rush and with Camille against the sort of military state on board Destiny. Uh, and this, how far have we come now where Greer steps up and does this for him and, and um, not just is willing to, to donate a kidney to save his life, but, you know, he, he takes him for a walk in the, in the garden. Look at the, the way that the new hydroponics, I guess, is at a lab... Uh, I would call it a lab, yeah. Yeah, how that's all flourishing now, and it's it's sort of uh, the closest thing we have on Destiny to a backyard. Actually, and that's actually a scene that I thought was perfect uh, for this episode to show, again, kind of how the crew is starting to mesh 
with each other, even people you wouldn't have assumed last year would ever find mm -hmm. a common ground together. Especially military and civilian. So Volker gets his new kidney. TJ has to study Ancient to, to do this. Uh, one of my quibbles the first time I watched the episode was, isn't everything here in Ancient? How can she even read the database, read the 175 pages on this stem cell-like treatment um, for, for post-op rejection? Uh, and there's this little line that I caught the second time I watched it where, where Dr. Park asks TJ how that Ancient Translation program is working for her. Mm -hmm. So Park has apparently written maybe uh, a translation program for the non-scientists to use. And then did you notice at the end a uh, little something-something with, with Volker and Dr. Park? I did, and I found that odd. And again, because I, you know, to be honest with you, I've had a lot of other stuff going on. And I uh, actually ended up marathoning some of these last few episodes uh, mm. compared to the trip. But uh, weren't Park and Greer? together they were one. together in so far as they were together exactly together together yeah so yeah there was definitely an affectionateness i, I the park showed towards mm -hmm. Volker that actually did take me by surprise yeah brody sort of picks up on it and, and excuses himself that uh, that maybe these two want to be alone and it goes back to malice when simeon was was leaving the ship and he 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 took the, the Lucian Alliance bomb uh, and, and took Park, Dr. Park, through the gate and stuck it on her. That's the last time I think we saw some of this, this sort of uh, affection that, that Volker has for her. And it looks now like it, it, it may be developing. It may be going two ways now. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought back in Malice that he definitely had a crush on her. Oh, yeah. So that's nice to see. Again, it's, it's these secondary characters that are, are really just winning this episode, especially this this B storyline. I mean, as much as TJ has to do, and as much as on her uh, to to learn and to accomplish, it, it's kind of, it's Volker's story. Okay, so how about the other plot line here? Episode is appropriately titled "Hope," both because of uh, Volker's surgery to save his life, and because there's not one but two significant characters from the history of the show who we thought were dead. Uh, in that same episode, in Malice, we thought they were dead, and now there is uh, there's hope. Well, through the communication stones, there is a, a malfunction, and we come to find out uh, that not only is again somehow still, uh, at least in a consciousness state, still alive, but also Doctor Amanda Perry. Bringing both of those two on, which uh, Amanda Perry, we don't get to see her initially. Um, the way it's explained in the episode is that it's almost kind of like a radio signal has been established. Yeah, that's sort of the analogy that Eli uses. But uh, that the signal that uh, Gin is uh, able to provide is much uh, larger, at least at this point, than the one that uh, Dr. Perry is able to get through. So over the course of the episode, you, you see a lot of back and forth because you've got three different consciousnesses uh, within Chloe, and all of them are, are struggling to a degree to maintain dominance, and a lot of back and forth, which uh, actually I think causes some interplay and almost to a degree, I, I think, worry, uh, especially between Eli and uh, Matthew Scott Yeah. In regards yeah. to Chloe's safety. Yeah, and there at the end, you know, Rush, too, when the love of his life shows up, uh, or I guess the second love of his life since his wife passed away. She shows up, and then it's suddenly all three of these guys in this room, and they've got a vested interest in the three minds that are floating around inside of Chloe's head. 
Yeah. Okay. So now let's let's remember here if we if we don't remember what went on with Amanda Perry and Gin, who was a member of the Lucian Alliance. She was a scientist working with Eli. This is back in the Greater Good episode seven this year, uh, following over into Malice when we found out that they were both dead. The two of them switched using the communication stones. Doctor Perry uh, was back on Earth. Gin was on Destiny. Uh, so they switched, and then while they were switched, Simeon, the Lucian Alliance guy, killed her. It was it was Perry's consciousness in Gin's body, mm-hmm. and the reason he did this was because um, was Gin was apparently being debriefed by Homeworld Command, giving them intelligence about the Lucian Alliance threat to Earth, uh, and so he wanted to stop her. So this is not something that that we've necessarily had happen before with communication stones. Is what happens if you get killed? while you are in somebody else's body. And Malice led us to believe that they were both dead and gone. Lieutenant James used the stones to go back to Earth and confirm that Dr. Perry was dead. Gin was not still there. Uh, Perry's consciousness didn't go back to her body. And what we learn in Hope is that their bodies may have died, but their minds, their consciousnesses, were sort of just sort of cut loose and were floating, um, but were still accessible to the communication stones, which is a really fascinating idea. This is... This is why I love Hope so much, uh, or one of the reasons, is, is because it's just such a great classic science fiction premise, right? It's, it's you know, um, multiple consciousnesses. They take, in, time, they take the time body. to explain, uh, because they haven't been able to reach anybody in the episode. Uh, this is set about six days or so after the events of Alliance. Right. And they're right. questioning whether or not the uh, bomb that uh, the Lucian Alliance uh, sent into Homeworld Command, whether or not that's gone off or not. Did they save them? Did they not? They have no clue. They haven't heard anything in six days. And uh, so you get uh, Chloe coming in at the very beginning of the episode and saying, okay, it's time for me to take over. And she falls asleep. And it's not. Yeah, they're doing shifts. Exactly. And she falls asleep. And it's not until she falls asleep that her consciousness itself relaxes enough to let these signals from Perry and, and from Gen in enough to be able to interact. Yeah, and so Eli likens it to a radio signal, and I imagine that maybe Gin's was stronger because she was the local signal. Her body was on destiny. That's what that was her transmission point. That would be my guess. Yeah, Perry was being transmitted from Earth. Maybe that's why her signal is weaker, uh, even though we are able to pick it up here in another galaxy. So yeah, we've been we've had people taking turns on stone duty, basically sitting on the stones waiting for a connection with Earth for six days to find out if that bomb blew up Washington D.C. or not. And and eventually we find out at the end, Telford shows up real quick. Uh, he's got like three lines, and he tells us that Senator Michaels was able to to disarm the bomb, and Washington is safe. So that's cool. That that storyline is is tied up. Everybody's safe. So it's because Chloe fell asleep. Is the explanation that we're given as a possibility for why she was able to access these consciousnesses when no one else was? And Rush says that he's just sort of speculating. We don't really mm-hmm. know what's going on here, but uh, this gives us an opportunity to learn more about how the stones work. Remember, this is a technology that the SGC picked up just, what, like five, six years ago, maybe? Right. Beginning of season nine of SG1. That sounds about right, yeah. Now we have a lot of voicemail um, and a lot of people with questions and with ideas, some really interesting ideas about the way that communication stones are being used here, the way that we have multiple minds uh, in Chloe's body. Uh, We're going to get into some of these voicemails and and address some of these questions and issues. But something that I thought of was the fact that this 
body swapping technology changed later on in Stargate from when it was first introduced. When it was first introduced in Avalon and Origin, the first three episodes of uh, SG-1 Season 9, mm-hmm. Daniel and Vala used this technology to send their minds to another galaxy, to the Ori home galaxy. But they didn't get people in return. The people who, whose bodies they took over didn't come to our galaxy and walk around in their bodies. Instead, they were just sort of lying in the infirmary for all intents and purposes. Right. Un- unconscious. That later, that technology changed so that we actually have a one-to-one swap and what I'm speculating on is maybe the technology does in fact work both ways because we have an example here of somebody who makes a connection uh, but doesn't leave their own body. Uh, Chloe's mind is sort of suppressed by Gin for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if maybe the, the, the two people, Herod and Salas, are the names of the, the characters that Daniel and Vala went into. I wonder if they were just suppressed uh, and didn't didn't body swap. Just kind of a minor point on on the way the technology works. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I think also, too, if you're going to use it as a story element going forward, it's been, you know, several years since, you know, SG-1 Season 9. You know, if you're going to use that, you know, you have to adapt it to a degree, too, to suit the story. And I think this is definitely from the use of the stones from the very beginning of SGU. I think it was a necessity to a degree. I know some people say that that plot point is overused, that the stones have been relied on too much over the course of the series. But uh, in this case, I think it's necessary. Well, this is a a fantastic story, is what Mm -hmm. results from this. And it's great where you can take a, a story device like communication stones and come up with a really interesting not just a really interesting story, but but sort of a classic science fiction story as well. Uh, that is is uh, it's still a character piece, you know. It's still a character drama. The episode isn't about the science of body swapping, about how the stones work, as much as we may like to talk about that. The, you know, the episode is about Eli has been mourning the loss of Gin, this cute redhead scientist that he was starting to fall in love with, or maybe had fallen in love with, and now she's back. Mm-hmm. Um, She's she doesn't have her body anymore, and he he has to sort of break the news to her that that they buried her body on the next planet they found, and it was a beautiful ceremony. Uh, and you know, both he and Rush are sort of holding out hope for their respective loved ones that maybe we can find a body to put you into at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got some calls on that, uh, some really interesting ideas. But that's I, sort of the hope. It's about the, it's about what those characters are going through. Also, immediately, right in the first act there, where you see uh, Gin say, this is Gin, I'm here and I'm back, it's through the stones, she's using Chloe's body, and I automatically go back to Eli and and the crush that he held for Chloe all -hmm. through the first season, and now his current love interest, who he thought (laughs) he'd lost, is now in the body of the woman who he cared for and thought he loved, you know, previously. Mm-hmm. And uh, kissing him. And, and kissing him. and it Complicates set up things a little bit. It set up a triangle that I thought they'd pay off more on. Yeah, and by the end of the episode, we've got Rush and Perry and Chloe and Matt and Eli and Kent. We've got, we've got like a love hexagon going. Exactly. And I was just going to say, overall, as little as that was touched on i think it was handled appropriately within the context of the episode that wasn't where the story needed to go yeah and it it unfolds in such an interesting way i think because it starts out the first good chunk at least a third to a half of the episode is all we know is the gin is in there 
we don't know where Chloe's gone. Matt appropriately asks, who is she connected to? So there's speculation for the first part of the episode that Chloe's mind must be somewhere else based on the way that we know these stones supposedly work. Um, is she somewhere? Is she in an alien body? Um, and so when she pops back and we get to talk to her for a few seconds, we're asking her questions like, where were you? Did you see anyone? Did you hear anything? Uh, and it takes a while for the characters to work out that she's not going anywhere, that she's just being suppressed. And then they start popping back and forth, uh, and you know, Matt says, this is just nuts. And at that point, I'm thinking, okay, this is the most awesome episode ever. And then it gets even better by the fact that Perry shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the way that Carl Binder wrote this episode so that it, it has this sort of escalating tension. Um, I, it was just beautiful. So you ready to hear some of this voicemail? Absolutely. Let's see what uh, some other people have to say about uh, communication stones in particular. Listen and mail. Hey, Dan and Dave, this is John from D.C. Just wanted to call about this week's episode. I uh, just wanted to uh, mention that the stones that, like, were the signal with Perry and Jen. I don't. They never thought that they worked as like a broadcast going, you know, uh, you know, everywhere instead of a focused line towards, you know, wherever the other stone is. Um, and so I'm, uh, I'm curious what your thoughts on that. Is it like those combos that you know relay? the messages and like when they got cut off they were trapped in one of those or is it something more like uh uh something tied in with the stargates well you know the destiny is so far out you know how does you know one gate billions and billions of you know how far away it still knows to go to that one gate and the, i would always thought there had to be more to the network that you know some some way or some router or something that, you know, relays, you know, the signals from one to the other. And just want to give that thought to you guys and uh, I'll listen to your thoughts. John, I think, is on to something here. The stones seem to be broadcasting themselves. And they've never entirely explained the way that one stone connects to another stone. David may crack my skull over this when he comes back because there was some some talk early on in... I'm thinking about episodes like Citizen Joe from SG-1 where, where there are two stones that are actually paired. So uh, is the idea that that we took the pair of that stone with us to Destiny? Uh, or is the thought that, that there's just a bunch of stones on the same network and, and you can sort of connect with just about anybody? And if that's the case, then when we're always sending two people back to Earth, how do they always end up in the right gender body? Or the possibility, maybe, even that it is dual purpose, and yes, it can be a direct line to another stone, but it also has broadcast properties. Mm. Do we know that, is it one or the other, or could it, does it need to be exclusive to one or the other, or could it be all? I mean, we spent the entire original movie of Stargate thinking that the Stargate only would, <laughs> would only go to one place, right? and then we find out in the pilot for SG-1, it's not just one place, it's tons of places. You know, and it took... You know, even from, you know, the movie to the pilot, which a, roughly a year or so has passed in between that, to discover that there are multiple purposes for that piece of technology, what makes the stones any different? It may not be exclusive. It does this, or it may do this. It could be all. 
a, a single point-to-point broadcast, like a Stargate, dialing to one specific other Stargate, versus a broadcast that could be picked up a, a number of places along the line. It's maybe it's sort of a both-and, like light having the properties of of both waves and particles. Because remember, we've we've got stones on Destiny that have apparently connected to other stones. When Young connects with the blue alien in space, he speculates that, that that alien got access to a communication stone because Rush had one. He got it off of Rush. So then that would be one of Destiny's stones connecting to one of Destiny's stones. Hi, Darren and David. This is Jeremy from Oregon, and I'm calling about last week's episode, Hope. Um, after seeing the episode, I had a, an interesting idea that I'd like to share. So... Amanda Perry was on Earth when she died, and yet her consciousness is now in the Destiny's computer. So they inadvertently created, possibly created a way for um, the crew of the Destiny to get back to Earth. Maybe they could somehow use the stones to have their consciousness downloaded into bodies on Earth using methods from Stargate SG-1's Season 9's Collateral Damage, where Mitchell has his memories, or has false memories put in his head, or maybe using the same technology that the Asgard used to download their consciousness into new clones. This way, the um, crew of the Destiny might have a way to get home if they ever really needed it. Now, this is a really interesting idea, Jeremy. Have we found a way to basically save everybody? Because we can't get their bodies home, but we can transmit their minds. All we have to do is sort of cut them off from their bodies, the way that that Gin and Dr. Perry were, and we can sort of capture their broadcast signal again back on Earth instead of instead of on Destiny. Presumably, all we need then is is a body to stick them into. What do you think, Chaz? Is this feasible? Feasible? Uh, I, I <laughs> would anybody possibly. volunteer for it? <laughs> exactly. Why would you want to if there was even the remote chance of possibly at some point getting home? Somewhere down the way. It's not something that I would sign up for. Yeah, it's a sort of uh, last-ditch, desperate measure. I could imagine somebody maybe deciding to do this and then live as a computer program uh, until we find something like Jeremy mentions uh, the Asgard. The Asgard cloned new bodies and downloaded their consciousness from from one Thor, you know, Thor version 2 to Thor version 3. Of course, their species ended because they they couldn't perfect the cloning of the body. But if we can find a body, then maybe that's a way to get home. Now, of course, remember, the people on Destiny now are not all eager to get home anymore. They're, they're, they're sort of more on board with fulfilling this mission. So it's a great idea, though. Absolutely. And going back to the consciousness just floating out there, too, this is not, not the first time that that's happened in Stargate. If we go back to Atlantis and mm-hmm. Dr. Weir and, and technology that was used there, uh, which is something we may want to touch on later. That's right, yeah, and Ghost in the Machine. So before we get into the next set of voicemail, we should talk about the rest of the episode, which is our idea of getting these minds out of Chloe is to use... The chair. The chair, of course. And Colonel Young says, Rush, it's always the chair with you. So if uh, if we stick uh, Chloe's body into this chair and drill the little things into her temples, we think we know enough about how the chair works now that we can actually isolate Gin and Dr. Perry 
and dump them into the computer system as programs. Fortunately, it's Lieutenant Scott who says to Young, Sir, this is ultimately not our decision. This is not your decision. And they go and they take it to the three women and explain it to them and explain the risks. And, uh, you know, props to Chloe. She is, uh, she's been through a whole lot and she is, she's not really freaked out. She's she's game for it. She's not scared. She's not whimpering. She's a strong character at this point who is willing, you know, she says, I'm fine. Do what it takes to try and save them. So we stick her in the chair and uh, the lights flicker and it complicates Volker's surgery, but it seems to work. We get the two of them out. Chloe seems to be back to normal, and now Dr. Perry and Gin are back. Hallelujah. They're both great characters and great actresses. Uh, one, thing see see. one thing and we do see. thing that they get to appear. There. They get to appear now all over the ship, like the doctor on Voyager. <laughs> we do see, though, that in the middle of that transfer, and this is also going on in the middle of Volker's surgery at the same time, is uh, there's a power surge of some sort, and, and a lot of key systems drop out, like Destiny's having problems, or it's, or it's taxing for the ship to be taking on these mines, basically, mm-hmm. as additional computer programs. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that's something that we may see play out in a larger fashion in a, one of the future episodes here, as we finish up the run. Yeah, it's nice that it's not easy. I mean, as, as much as the plan seems to go off without a hitch... There is this hitch in that it, it seems to be really taxing on Destiny. It's not necessarily that we could do this anytime we want to. Um, and it's just, it's just sort of easy to digitize a person. Okay, so with that piece on the board now, let's listen to some more voicemail. Hello, this is Stephen from Medford, Oregon. I'm calling about the episode of Hope. I wanted to get your thoughts on what kind of memory core you think would be needed to hold the consciousness, you know, that they, you know, displayed, you know by them projecting themselves from the the memory core somehow, but I wanted to get, you know, maybe if you could find, you know, talk about some other Stargate episodes where they maybe have shared consciousness before. Chad, do you remember any other episodes from the past? Uh, We talked a little bit about Ghost in the Machine, which has disembodied consciousness going into a computer system and then going into a, a replicator body. Uh, probably other... the most, uh, the one that stands out for me goes back to SG-1 Season 7 and Lifeboat, where uh, Dr. Jackson gets many minds inside his head, and, and we get to see the uh, sharing back and forth. And again, that's another thing where it's fighting for dominance, and until close to the end, you know, Dr. Jackson himself doesn't get, he's suppressed himself, and it's them fighting against each other. Yeah, and at the end of that episode... If I remember right, it was it was one of that civilization's own people. They're one of their few survivors who volunteers to take all those disembodied minds into his own. So he's he ends up living with like fourteen fourteen minds in his head. I guess the bigger question that it begs for me is if it was allowed to continue and you weren't putting the health of anybody at risk in doing that, what would that do over the long course of time, having that many different separate personality you know it would be forced schizophrenia and what would that do to the host the person the main person that took all these on over the course of time i I would think it would be not something that would be healthy in the long run yeah that's certainly the way that it was going in lifeboat and for daniel it was it was um literally multiple personalities and it was pushing him towards some sort of psychotic break um 
which is what that guy was risking. We should let Dean have have. Uh, we should let Dean in on the conversation here. He talks about Lifeboat too. Hi, um, my name is Dean, and I'm calling from Vancouver. And this is a question about or a comment about um, uh, well, two comments. One about Twin Destinies, and one about Hope. For Twin Destinies, um, you know, the alternate history where Rush speaks to the whole crew and Young is supporting him, uh, and uh, Chloe and the others join him or are willing to join him uh, on the Destiny's mission. Um, I thought that was kind of almost like an alternate finale or kind of the finale that I'd like to see for uh, Stargate Universe. And I, I wondered what your thoughts were on that um, because, uh, you know, I, I thought that Rush's, whatever finale they gave for Stargate Universe, um, that Dr. Rush's uh, motives would be left kind of ambiguous as to whether he was kind of helping the crew get home or whether he was kind of after knowledge. Um, but the fact that everybody joins him and uh, is willing to help him in his mission um, is kind of the way that it, it was very moving, and I thought it was kind of the way, the kind of finale that I'd want, even though everybody dies, you know, going through the through the wormhole in the alternate history. But anyways, um, my second comment is about um, Hope, I guess, uh, the latest episode. And um, I kind of thought that it, it kind of occurred to me that, you know, having um, a stored consciousness or kind of having, like, you know, a ghost in the machine um, there's kind of an element of horror, you know, to that. And I think that's a theme that's been used uh, a number of times. I think there was a, an episode of um, Stargate SG-1 that, I think from the seventh season, I remember, like where they had all these stored consciousness, consciousness in, in one guy. But um, uh, I thought that, you know, like for uh, like uh, Amanda Perry or Ginn, um, I, I could almost see, you know, down the road that, you know, if they're not downloaded to a body, soon enough, you know, not being able to interact, you know, like in a, in a real way with the rest of the crew, you know, could almost drive them mad after after a while. So I thought that, um, or maybe even the ship itself, you know, could go mad after millions of years with uh, with kind of, you know, a, a semi-developing consciousness. But, um, and I also wondered if there was any ancient still, you know, ancient minds that are still in the ship, even though it wasn't manned, you know, perhaps some ancients have died and they're still in there somewhere. Dean's got this great little suggestion that made me just stand up and say, why didn't I think of that? Which is, we figured out how to use the chair to stick Dr. Perry and Ginn into the ship, and what if this has happened before? Is it possible that there are actually other digitized people inside the ship? Could there be, you know, actions from, from when Destiny was launched? Which uh, I think is a ago? great, great idea. And, and if uh, you want to take that to a secondary thought span, we have established that destiny itself is able to kind of look into the minds you know, and psyches of the people that are on board her. The, the whole uh, couple episodes there with Young going through his, you know, basically break and, and the grief of everything he had to deal with at the very beginning of the season and then destiny right. testing him and his resolve and metal uh, by going into that battle simulation was that destiny itself or could it be possibly and this goes back to Dean's idea are there disembodied people within destiny's memory unit that are able to you know is this a machine that's doing this or is it maybe the ancients themselves somewhere deep inside destiny's guts yeah and when destiny acts and does something like this is is it is it destiny's own artificial intelligence or are there possibly actively running programs of minds in there, of some of the people who created the ship who were actually directing it? 
causing it to do things like putting Colonel Young through the, the battle scenario back in trial and error. Hi, this is Tyler from the Seattle area, and I'm calling about the most recent episode of SGU. Oh my god. I could not re- believe what was going on in that. And I'm just wondering if you guys think this means we'll be seeing more of um, Dr. Perry and Gin throughout the rest of the season, or if you think it'll be kind of a, you know, we got to see them now and we probably won't see them again, just like how we haven't seen um, the other scientists in quite some time now, because it has been quite a while since we saw any of the holograms from Destiny. And I'm just wondering what you guys think on it, because I'm hoping to see them again, especially since that gives both Rush and uh, Eli more fun with their levers. Hi, this is David Reed from Los Angeles, California. I'm just calling into the Gate World podcast because I'm not going to be able to do my own show this weekend. Uh, I'm on my way to Phoenix, and by the time this thing airs, I'll uh, be back. So no one break into my apartment, please. Um, I just had to uh, attribute my two cents to the episode, even though I'm not going to uh, co-host this week. Um, the, uh, the episode that just aired was absolutely fantastic. Um, definitely one of my favorites this year. You know, it answered a lot of questions that I wasn't expecting it to. Um, I wasn't expecting to see a lot of these questions answered before the, the show ended now. So it's, it's uh, really exciting that we've got uh, a, uh, a, a reason for what happened to Franklin, a legitimate, a legitimate reason. And we got a couple of great uh, actresses back to the, uh, back to the show. So just truly a fantastic episode, and perhaps maybe the greatest scene in all of uh, uh, well, I don't know, maybe all of Stargate, but certainly one of, one of the greatest scenes in all of Stargate with uh, with the theme from 2001, and then switching over to that pop song, the name I can't remember right now. Uh, absolutely great moment. I was laughing out loud. You guys don't have too much fun without me now. I'll see you next week. Hey, Darren and David. Uh, this is Stephanie calling from Japan, um, and I am a little behind on the podcast, but of course a lot has been going on over here. Um, hopefully some of your listeners can maybe donate to some of the relief efforts here. Um, but besides that, I still have been watching Stargate, and I just want to say that the last three episodes have been the most amazing episodes ever, like ever. There have been great episodes before, but just like it just keeps getting better and better and better. Um, and about hope, basically, I think this episode kind of proved that Franklin is real. And if Franklin is real, then that proves Gloria is real. <laughs> and I just want to know like how that's possible. Um, you said a couple episodes ago, a couple podcasts ago, that like the interface doesn't have a USB port. I don't know how he got her on there. I don't know what's going on. It's really confusing and really awesome, but um, I want to know what you think about that. And also, <laughs> if Gloria's real and Mandy's real, doesn't that, like, present some kind of really weird love triangle? <laughs> um, I'm really interested to see that how that turns out. Um, and one other thing I wanted to say is that this really reminds me of um, something else going on. I, 
I can't remember which one of you watches um, Doctor Who, the cool one. <laughs> Whichever one of you is the cool one watches Doctor Who. Just kidding. But um, I want to know if it reminds you of Silence in the Library when, um, you know, Silence in the Library and the next one after that where they download the consciousness into the main computer. Um, just wanted to see if you have any thoughts on that. Stephanie, first of all, is absolutely right that anybody within the sound of my voice uh, should be looking to donate funds to the relief efforts in Japan. Stephanie, thanks for calling. Uh, fantastic to hear from you. I hope that you're well, and I hope that you're safe over there. Everybody, I'm going to put a link uh, in the show notes at gateworld.net uh, to the Red Cross where you can go in and donate funds specifically for Japan's tsunami relief. Now, Stephanie also has some fantastic thoughts about this episode. Um, Chad, do you think this proves that Franklin is real, the Franklin that, that uh, Dr. Rush has been seeing running around the bridge? You know, initially, you know, going forward up to this point, I always kind of thought that maybe Rush himself was having a bit of a psychotic break himself and just yeah, getting these visions of people. And now, if anything, I think, and I agree with Stephanie completely, I think this episode proves that Franklin is real, at least in that form now. There's an interesting line where, where Rush sort of lets us in on, on Franklin. He lets the rest of the crew in on Franklin. He says the the chair apparently, you know, beamed up Franklin's consciousness, stored him in the computer, and he's been seeing him. Uh, and we've been wondering where the heck Franklin and also Gloria, Rush's wife, where they went. Because as soon as the rest of the crew found out about the bridge and started hanging out there in Rush's little, little secret hiding place, um, those characters are gone. They're not appearing to Rush. They're not appearing to anybody. And Rush explains in this episode that after trial and error, where, where Colonel Young went through the battle scenarios caused by destiny, Rush found out a way to basically turn Franklin off uh, so that the ship can't have this, this sort of neural interface with people walking around on board. So now presumably it's back on, I would think, because Gin and Perry can appear to people. Or is there the possibility that it can be on for some programs? Because each you know mind is basically an individual program, can the individual ones be shut off? Does it have to be all or nothing, or can it be the ones they choose? Yeah, maybe allow it for some programs, not for others. I would think that it would be an all or nothing, because it's the function of destiny being able to tap into your brain, I think is what's being turned on and off. Okay. So, yeah, it does seem that Franklin is Franklin. Um, I think that uh, we still don't know where his body went when it was enveloped by the vapor. We don't know where his body went, but this does seem seem pretty conclusively to say that that Franklin is Franklin, but he's he's not you know hiding behind the bulkhead and then popping out. He's uh, he's non corporeal. He's he's a being projected into Russia's mind. But I think it is the real Franklin. So that kind of makes me wonder, you know, why is he not talking to anybody else? Why is he? I mean, he's not really acting like himself, like a guy who who just got stuck in the computer system and wants to have a chat and maybe play chess. Um, but Stephanie also suggests that maybe this means that Gloria is therefore real. But how is it possible for Gloria to be real? Because she wasn't stuck in the chair. She didn't get her consciousness sort of digitized and stuck into the mainframe. She came from Russia's head. Exactly. And that's the only thing that I can think of is the fact that Franklin is real, Gloria is not. And that is his own mind and consciousness, you know, trying to talk to him. Yeah, that would be my suspicion, is that Gloria is is actually Rush. Uh, Rush having a... 
having some sort of a, a mental breakdown, which hopefully he's he's healing from at this point. But it's just as likely, based on, on uh, what we've seen so far, the way that, that Destiny works and, and the way that that chair works, it's, it's entirely possible that maybe the chair created her out of Russia's head. It's not the real Gloria in the sense that, that you know, Gin is now the real Gin in the computer system. Uh, but this is sort of a fabrication that the ship created that it's now projecting into to Russia's mind, that it, that it basically learned from him who she is and what she's like when he sat mm-hmm. in the chair back in human. So how much do you think we're actually going to see these two characters from this point? Do you think that they're going to pop back up in the next six episodes? I would like to see it, to be honest. Uh, you know, to be completely fair and honest, I think both Eli and Rush have both gone through quite a bit over these last span of episodes. And having Dr. Perry and Gin back, I think, validates and, and gives those characters a little bit more to play with. And I don't know if they can factor hugely into the ongoing plots going forward, but it would be nice for them to maintain a presence as opposed to them just being there now and then disappearing, you know, kind of like what Franklin has done since they discovered the bridge. Yeah, and and I can excuse the disappearance of Franklin and Gloria a lot based on the fact that, that Rush was able to turn them off. These guys were apparently wanting very much to give them some free reign and let them experience life a little bit since they've been floating around as disembodied spirits, although it was nice to hear that, you know, when Gin explains her experience, she says that, you know, I was on Earth, I was talking to Homeworld Command, and then everything went dark, and then I woke up here. She hasn't spent the last, you know, two or three months experiencing consciously, you know, being disembodied and floating around as a, as a exactly. signal. One big thing from the episode that I took, too, and it was a theme towards the very end of the episode, too, was uh, Eli, when he's talking with Gin towards uh, the end, and uh, even prior, before Gin sits down in the chair to be extracted from Chloe's body, they talk about the fact Eli, since the beginning of the series, has been desperate. He's lonely, you know. His mom, who is not in the best of health, you know, is really his only connection back on Earth, and he's searching for a connection on the ship. It didn't happen with Chloe. It finally happens with Gin, and then it's ripped away from him. And Having her back in this way now, uh, keeping that connection, one of the big themes there is the fact, yes, they can't touch each other, but to be able to hear each other, to discuss, to talk, it is enough. And in the end, I think it saves Eli in a lot of ways from maybe going down the Rush character defining factors that made him bitter and hard. It's been discussed earlier, you know, that uh, Eli is basically someone that could become rushed later on if certain factors aren't. Am I making sense or not? Yeah, yeah. It totally makes sense. Um, Rush was a brilliant guy who was consumed with his work and lost the woman he loved. And, uh, you know, the Gloria in his head in the end of, of the episode Human basically says that you allowed that to make you this way, to harden you. And it's not who you really are. It's not who you used to be. So maybe in that sense, Eli is sort of that that uh, young kid, and we've got we've gotten a, a good amount of conversation in the last several podcasts from callers about the fact that Eli seems like he needs to go a little bit more dark. We've talked about the fact that his his dealing with this grief over the loss of Gin has been it's caused him to turn inward uh, more than sort of react outward. But either way, he could certainly he could have been on a path to hell, 
And I think the fact that Gin is back is is obviously good news for Eli. It's sort of cuts it's that nice short. To it's nice to see Eli take that path, but it's not one I want to see him permanently on. It's just not who the character is, in my opinion. Yeah. And then, yeah, that beautiful touching scene at the end of the episode, he said to her before they did the procedure, it can be enough just to see you, to hear your voice. Remember, he's been interacting with Chloe this whole time, uh, with Chloe's voice and Chloe's face. Uh, and it's not until the end of the episode that he gets to see Gin as Gin looks and, and to hear her voice. And she sort of comes around and says, you know what? this is enough. Uh, at least for now. There's still this hope that we're going to find some body out there to stick you in. Uh, hopefully without killing somebody else in the process. It's a, it's a really touching ending. A touching ending with a lack of touch because Gin tries to, you know, caress Eli's cheek and her fingers pass right through in this cool little sci-fi effect. And it's interesting to look at the way that the two women who get uh, uploaded into the computer system deal with this because Perry is, uh, you know, she tells Nick that that sort of being free from her her quadriplegic body was was what she's dreamed of since her accident. Uh, So she's kind of into this. She's kind of happy about this idea. Uh, And the first thing that she does is she figures out what's going on with Volker's surgery, and she pops into the infirmary and talks TJ through the rest of the surgery. She's going to be a a helpful little, busy little beaver on the ship. Versus Gin goes completely AWOL. And when she finally shows up to, to Eli, he, he's sort of wondering, you know, we've seen Perry, we saw your program, uh, kind of wondering when I was going to see you. I think she's been dealing with it. She's been sort of processing it. Whereas Perry knows immediately she'll have purpose yeah. and jumps right into the fray. And that's just the difference between the two personalities. Yeah, and it's almost a gain for Perry in that sense. She says that she feels free. Hi, Darren and David. This is depleted ZPM calling from California. The episode Hope looks like a turning point in our understanding of destiny and the neural interface chair. We learned that uploading a person is at least one key function of the chair. And I'm going to use mind as a shorthand for disembodied persons, though I believe our identities comprise more than just the brain or neural systems. Of course, transfer of minds is a long-standing concept in fantasy and science fiction. In Stargate, the Asgard transferred many times over an individual's lifespan, though somewhere in the process, they lost their potential for ascension. Aboard Destiny, perhaps there's a yet undiscovered device to form new bodies for disembodied minds. What if that device were to create new bodies with evolved ancient capabilities like healing or telekinesis? Undesirable side effects might be losing the potential for ascension or worse, getting stuck in an unsuitable body. I'd rather not contemplate Gin inhabiting the body of a Roswell Gray alien. On another tangent, maybe Destiny has an ancient consciousness aboard already that we have yet to meet. Or perhaps we have met this consciousness since ancients have been known to masquerade as other beings. Gay World, this is Josh out in New York giving you a call. Hey, I just got done watching the episode Hope, and honestly, it was a great episode. The season has been awesome, but I expected more uh, between Matt and Eli. Uh, Eli's girl just came back. I know we were talking last week about how Eli has had an internal emotional journey, and it's not very uh, it's not very outward, but I think I expected more from him to be fighting for Gin, not... He seems just in the background, kind of not saying a whole ton, but trying to work on the problem. And 
Matt keeps pulling him aside and is concerned about Chloe. And I consider, I thought Eli should grab him, hit him, and be like, this is my girl. I'm doing whatever I can to save her. But he doesn't say that, which I was a little disappointed by. And Matt seems doesn't get super angry emotionally. He seems like a chill boyfriend, but he keeps pulling him aside. It, I just expected more conflict between the two of them about priorities of of what they need to do with uh, with whoever's inhabiting Chloe. And uh, I like the ending, great ending, and a great sci-fi ending, but I wanted more. And uh, we're not getting a whole lot of uh, Dark Eli, which seems to should be the natural progression of this character. Uh, we're getting a hopeful Eli, and we're getting told how wonderful and superboy he is. It's a great character, but it would add a whole lot more character if we would see some more darkness. Hi, this is Isaac from Chicago. I have to admit when I'm wrong, and uh, Rush wasn't uh, schizophrenic. Uh, he was actually communicating with the ship, and uh, we got that conclusively um, determined in this episode, um, especially once we realized that not only can we transfer a mind into the ship, but that mind can then uh, manifest itself um, around the ship to different people when they so desire. Um, but the only problem I had with this episode was I saw it as very predictable. Uh, as soon as we get Gin and we establish that Chloe's not connecting to someone and it's not, you know, and, and, that, and that they're switching back and forth um, without any reason for them to switch back and forth, that Chloe was still in there and Gin was there. And it was a little, I didn't expect the Amanda Perry, but it makes sense if she was, if the two of them were connected. And then um, they're, you know, now we saved them. I wonder if we could, uh, if we ever make it back, um, if we could use uh, the technology from Atlantis to basically create replicators um, for um, Gin and Amanda Perry and make them into full-fledged human beings again with their bodies and with their, you know, with their consciousnesses. Avi, that's an interesting idea. Maybe if we can get everybody back to Earth and get uh, get the ship back to Earth, or or at least you know the data from the computer, at least at least uh, Amanda and Gin, Atlantis has the technology to create bodies, you know, to create replicator bodies, which we saw in Ghost in the Machine, uh, which we saw in Be All My Sins Remembered in Atlantis. Uh, we could make bodies for Gin and Doctor Perry. It's a possibility, but again, it goes back to the fact that they are replicator bodies, and there was a reason why we ended up still, you know, frozen out in space at the end of Ghost of the Machine. Any overall thoughts on Hope? I think that this uh, getting these two characters back and, and having them basically as holograms now on the ship really opens up some new story possibilities. And Absolutely. I hope that we get to see them again and explore some of those possibilities between now and and episode 220, but it, it really goes to show that, that SGU has found its legs and is firing on all thrusters at this point. Thanks, everybody, for those calls. Here is the upcoming schedule for the GateWorld podcast. Very happy to have Chad here this week. Unfortunately, I think that David is going to be back next week. So, <laughs> Yeah, very unfortunate. All of us are going to have to put up with that. 
Mm-hmm. April 11th, next week, we're going to be talking about this big, big episode, Seizure, that airs this week. I, I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, that this is the most anticipated episode, at least of season two. And then on April 18th, we'll be talking about episode 16, The Hunt. And then on April 25th, our main discussion is on Common Descent. And that's our show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Big thanks to Chad for guest hosting. Oh, thank you for having me, Darren. It was great. And big thanks to Russell for editing this week's show. If you want to call in, we would love to hear your thoughts on Seizure. I think, again, we're going to have a lot of voicemail on this one. So let's hear from you guys and gals. Uh, The GateWorld Podcast hotline number is area code 951-262-1647. Or if you don't want to call a U.S.-based landline, you can always email in a brief audio recording that you make on your computer to webmaster at gateworld.net. If you want to chat about what's going on in the podcast and about what we're talking about, you can also pop on to the GateWorld podcast feedback thread over at GateWorld Forum, and there's a link to that in this week's show notes over on the GateWorld. Well, from GateWorld, this is Darren. And this is Chad. And we'll see you back here next week for more of the GateWorld podcast.